Uh, you may have seen the George Clooney film in, in the year 2000, the name of it, The Perfect Storm. It's the story of a commercial fishing, fishing vessel, the Andrea Gale, that set out from Massachusetts, ends up getting trapped in a crazy, crazy storm, like hurricane force winds, uh, 40 feet high waves crashing over the ship. The ship sinks, everybody dies, uh, uh, it's a total downer at, at the end, and yet it was a box office hit. I think they grossed like $350 million in, in, the, in the story, because you know, everybody loves sea stories, um, and I'll come back to that also a bit later, but ever since Homer's epic work, The Odyssey, people have they've loved stories about peril at, at the sea, you know. Sea voyages and pirates and attacks of the giant squid. I, I can't promise those, uh, you know, squid necessarily in Acts 27, but uh, it is the longest story found in the book of Acts, and it does have this epic sea voyage, a movie-like characteristic to it. In fact, if you're looking for a passage in the Bible to read to kids to keep them, keep them entertained and keep their attention on it, like this is probably one of the best passages to go to because uh, there's lots of activity. Quick background on it. If you weren't here last week or the week before, Paul was arrested and he didn't believe that he could get a fair trial in Israel. So he appealed his court case to Rome, to the Caesar, and his secret motivation for traveling all the way from Jerusalem to Rome was he wanted to preach the gospel there for the first time. Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts, happens to be with him in this chapter. He's, he's on the boat with him, and that's why you'll notice that all of the per- personal pronoun references are in the plural, that he's speaking about we and us. Ah, the Mediterranean Sea that they were traveling over is apparently very dangerous to navigate from mid-November to mid-March, so what the sensible thing to do uh, would be to, you know, harbor in the winter. And Paul, in chapter 27, he urges the captain of the boat to do that. He, he says, you know, we need to take this journey more slowly. But the ship's captain and centurion, um, the soldier there, were pr- determined to get to Rome as fast as possible. Presumably, the captain felt pressured to meet deadlines. So he's like, we're pressing on. We're, we're going to go. And that foolishness, you know, leads to this great story and this great lesson about sovereignty in storms. So let's pray again and then read the scripture. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you again um, believing that the Bible is the way that you speak with us. Uh, You do it through these words and through your spirit. And so it is that we ask that you would help us to to do the hard work of listening and, and listening well, listening carefully for your voice right now so that we would hear you and know your son, Jesus, and your words would change us from the inside out. You would change us and impact us on the heart level. We, we're open to hearing from you, and we pray that we would. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts 27, verse 13. When a gentle south wind sprang up, they thought they had achieved their purpose. This, the ship, that is, they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete, the, little island nation. But before long, a fierce wind called the Northeaster rushed down from the island. And since the ship was caught and unable to head into the wind, we gave way to it and we were driven along. After running under the shelter of a little island called Cauda, we were barely able to get control of the skiff. Uh, I don't even know what a skiff is, but I assume that's part of the ship. And after hoisting it up, 
they used ropes and tackle and girded the ship. Fearing they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the drift anchor, and in this way we were driven along. Because we were being severely battered by the storm, they began to jettison the cargo um, the next day. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands, food to eat. So many days, um, for many days, neither sun nor stars appeared, and the severe storm kept raging. Finally, all hope was fading that we would be saved. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul then stood up among them, and he said, You men should have followed my advice not to sail from Crete and sustain this damage and loss. Now I urge you to take courage, because there will be no loss of any of your lives, but only of the ship. For last night, an angel of the God I belong to and serve stood by me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. It is necessary for you to appear before Caesar. And indeed, God has graciously given you all those who are sailing with you. So take courage, men, because I believe, that God, I believe God that it will be just the way it was told to me. But we have to run aground on some island. When the 14th night came, we were drifting in the Adriatic Sea, and about midnight, the sailors uh, thought that they were approaching land, so they took soundings and found it to be 120 feet deep when they had sailed a little farther, and again, they found it to be only 90 feet deep. And then, fearing that we might run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight to come. Some sailors tried to escape from the ship. They had let down the skiff into the sea, pretending uh, that they were going to put out anchors from the bow. And Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut the ropes, holding the skiff, and let it drop away. Uh, When it was about daylight, Paul urged them all to take food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have been waiting and going without food, having eaten nothing. So I urge you to take some food, for this is for your survival, since none of you will lose, since none of you will lose a hair from your head. After he had said these things and had taken some bread, he gave thanks to God in the presence of all of them, and after he broke it, he began to eat. They were all encouraged and took food themselves. In all, there were 276 of us on the ship. When they had eaten enough, they began to tighten the ship by throwing the grain overboard into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but sighted a bay with a beach. They planned to run the ship ashore if they could. After cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea at the time, loosening the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and headed for the beach. But they struck a sandbar and ran the ship aground. The bow jammed fast and remained immovable, while the stern began to break up by the pounding of the waves. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners so that no one could swim away and escape. But the centurion kept them from carrying out their plan because he wanted to save Paul. And so he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and to get to land. The rest were to follow, some on planks and some on debris from the ship. And in this way, everyone safely reached the shore. So I doubt you've ever heard a a full sea story like that in church or that lengthy of a a reading of scripture. But there are a couple of nuggets in here that I want to point out to you. The first is this, number one, an interesting example of God's sovereignty 
And that word, sovereignty, uh, it refers to his, his supreme power and his authority. Okay, well, what is this interesting example? Uh, to understand it, you, you have to go back sometime to uh, the famous phrase that you uh, may have read, Don Quixote, Cervantes wrote it. I think that's where it originated. It's the phrase, que sera, sera. What does that mean? What will be, will be. Um, you know, it's the idea that like all of the events of life are predetermined. The future is fixed. It's, it's determined. And, and nothing that you can do can change that. So, you know, what will be, what will be. It's, you just kind of enjoy the ride, a, a cheerful sort of fatalism that everything is just going to happen as, uh, as it has already been determined to happen. That's, you know, one end of the spectrum of thought. Well, on the other end is the complete opposite. It's the belief that the future, the future is wide open, like nothing's predetermined. Really, it's just up to you and me and, and us to uh, choose our own adventure, to choose our future, right? To make good decisions and, and to look into uh, the, the unknown and fortune favors the brave, you know, all those kinds of phrases. Just do it. Everything, everything depends on what we choose to do. So those are basically the, the two classic points of view. And in a way, this story tells us which of those two views is right. Well, let's go back to the story for a moment. Paul and his shipmates have spent two weeks in a storm. Now, I've only been um, sailing on the sea once in my life, and it took me, as I can remember, about 90 minutes to be throwing up <laughs> over the side of the ship. I was so seasick uh, so quickly. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in, in the pounding waters before, but... Two, two weeks in a storm? Two weeks without seeing the light of day? Two weeks with waves and, and winds? And uh, Can you imagine what it would be like to go through two weeks in a hurricane? Um, they're fighting for their lives. So verse 17 says that they tie cables underneath the hull to keep the ship from breaking up, to hold it together. Then in verse 19, well, they begin throwing all the cargo off the ship to, to lighten the load. Uh, eventually, they start throwing the food off the ship. And it says that they got to the point, it was so bleak that they, they had lost all hope of survival. And it's at that moment, Paul, one of the passengers who is in chains, um, he stands up and he gathers them all together and he says, don't worry, we're going to make it, right? Uh, take heart. An angel of my God has appeared to me. Not a single one of us is going to die, but uh, the ship will be lost. So, but I want you to just keep up your courage. Keep up your courage, men, because it's, everything is going to happen exactly the way I have been told. So Paul has, he has like very strong assurances, angelic assurances that he knows the future. But do things get better? No, they don't. They get worse. Uh, as this, they keep moving along, you know, the sailors, they're measuring the depth of the water, taking soundings, and first it's 120 feet, and then it's 90 feet. It's getting shallower and shallower. Now, in those days, what they would oftentimes do, they would drop an, an anchor and drag the anchor on the bottom of uh, the, the sea, and when um, the strain of that single anchor was too much, they would drop a second anchor, and then even you know, a third anchor, and curiously enough, 
uh, archaeologists have found basically a series of anchors at the bottom of the Mediterranean or the Adriatic Sea, you know, close to land, as you know, this has happened before, um, and it's then followed by the wreckage of a ship. When we get to verse 30, the sailors know that things aren't looking good. Um, and I, I don't know if it was immediately apparent to you when I was reading the passage, but we have kind of two groups of people on this ship. We have, or maybe three, you'd say. We have uh, those who are imprisoned, <laughs> Paul and his comrades, Luke and others. We have uh, the sailors who are in charge of the ship, and we have soldiers. And so, um, you know, the sailors go to the front of the ship in the dead of night, at midnight, and they make it seem like they're going to just drop another anchor, when in reality, they're trying to drop the lifeboat. Uh, And Paul just happens to be strolling the deck of the ship in the middle of the night, or or maybe he suspects something fishy is about to take place. Um, But he notices that the sailors are, are trying to, you know, flee, go AWOL. And so he runs to the other end of the boat, and he says to the centurion, if you know what's happening, if the sailors leave, we're all going to die. You know, we can't handle the ship without them. Now, notice, please, what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, well, I've seen the future, and we're all going to live. Sailors or no sailors, you know, God has got this. He he doesn't say that at all. Instead, he says, like, if you don't stop them from what they're doing, we're going to die. And so the soldiers heed his advice. They rush to the front of the ship. They cut the the ropes of the lifeboat, and they let it drift away in the storm. There were basically two um, prominent schools of thought in Paul's day about the two ends of the spectrum that I spoke about earlier. And those schools of thought were Epicureanism and Stoicism. Um, Every single thing that happens, happens by predetermination, or free choices matter and everything happens only because we make it happen. Who of of those two groups do you think were the fatalists, the Stoics or the Epicureans? Kind of sounds like the, the Stoics, right? Uh, and the favorite story of the Stoics was the story of Oedipus. Maybe you remember that one, the great Greek tragedy. Oedipus was born, and there was an oracle which said that this young man will kill his father and marry his mother, which sounds about as horrific as it gets, right? And so the father hears the voice of the oracle, And he says, well, I'm not going to let that happen. And he gives his baby boy to, I don't know, a a woodsman. or And he says, take him out into the wilderness and kill him. Well, the the woodsman um, bundles him up and he takes him into the wilderness. But he can't kill him. He can't bring himself uh, to do it. And so he gives him to somebody else. Well, Oedipus grows up not knowing who his father is or his mother is. Um, later in the story, he comes and he conquers the Sphinx. You see the Sphinx pictured there. And in the end, in great Greek tragedy uh, manner, in spite of all of the efforts to avoid the destiny of killing his father and marrying his mother, that's ultimately what happens. Because it was determined by the gods, and there was nothing that anybody could do uh, to change it. And then <laughs> the the play ends with the narrator saying to an empty stage. At the very end, the narrator stands up and says these bleak words, no man should be considered fortunate until he is dead. (laughs) And that's the Stoics. 
Well, the Epicureans, um, they believe that the future is unencumbered. And a good example of Epicureanism, it's an old movie example, but if you remember Back to the Future 3, not one, not two, but three, Marty McFly and his girlfriend are talking to, you know, Doc Brown, and she's holding a piece of paper, and here's how the, uh, the exchange goes. Her name is Jennifer Parker, and she says, Dr. Brown, I brought this note back from the future, and now it's erased. And Doc Brown says, well, of course it's erased. Uh, but what does it mean? Well, it means your future hasn't been written yet. No one's has. Your future is whatever you make it. So make it a good one, both of you. And then Marty McFly has his arm around Jennifer, and I think he says, we will, Doc. You know, there you go. The whole idea of, you know, just make it great. Make, Make your future great. Epicureanism is like, I want my choices to matter. I want my decisions to be the determinative factor in my life. Well, you know, that sounds good when you're a teenager and you're in your 20s, but you know what happens when you reach your 40s or your 50s? You know, you, you look back and look at all the decisions you made, and, and sometimes you say, man, it's a miracle that I'm still alive. <laughs> it's a miracle that I've, I've made it. Like, I, I'm, I was such an idiot back then, we say that about ourselves at nearly every stage of life. Um, I was so clueless. I thought I had wisdom. I thought I knew what I was doing, um, but I didn't. You, no, what happens is you look back on your life and you realize just how many lucky breaks went your way and, and how things that were completely, completely out of your control somehow went into your favor. And so I wouldn't, here's where I'm going with it. Both ends of the spectrum are frightening. You know, stoicism is frightening, that there's nothing I can do to keep from fulfilling the fate of the faceless gods. And Epicureanism is frightening, the, the idea that it's only your choices that are solely determinative of your future. Like, that's not good news either. So what, what is, like, which of the two ends are, are correct? And which of the two ends um, are you more inclined towards? Do you know that about yourself? I think that I um, tend to be more of the stoic and think, well, you know, God is determined at all and, and, you know, it oftentimes, you know, leads to kind of a passivity in my life. You know, Paul is 100% certain that God has told him the plan, the future, and yet he's not, um, well, we're going to live. Who cares about the soldiers? The soldiers can go snorkeling for all I care. You know, we can't die. He's, he's not... He's not passive. He doesn't sit back. Um, No, he's running to the soldiers and pointing out, like, go, do this, that. Like, he knows there's a plan, and he knows that we got to do something about the plan, (laughs) you know, that our human actions and activities really matter and are really meaningful. And so when it's all said and done, is it meet in the middle, like 50%? God and 50% are choices? Is it 60-40 or 80-20? And the answer is, what do you think it is? Like, it's 100 and 100, <laughs> you know. It's 100-100. No, God is the author writing the story of human history. God is the one who's writing even your particular story. And we are nevertheless real actors in the drama that plays 
a, a meaningful role. And that's really the way the Bible always speaks to us. It's 100% him, and it's 100% him working through us. I can tell you one of the reasons why this is such a, a word of comfort is it means you have a father who loves you, uh, who's writing your story and the big story, um, and it's a good story. And yet you have a responsibility to live into that story. Like, you need to make it your aim to cultivate the wisdom and, and to make the best decisions suitable for each situation and, and sort of to live into your role in the narrative, which means you need to, like, know what your role is in the narrative. It's don't be passive, don't be lazy, but don't be anxious. He's given, he has given you his story to live in. And he's given you his spirit to animate you as you live in it. You say, well, how do I do that? That seems so um, counterintuitive, contradictory. Uh, How how do we wrap our minds around a hundred and a hundred? I can tell you the way that I uh, try to wrap it. I keep, I I just go back to, there's an, an ancient question and answer. The, most of our community knows it, but you know, this may be the first time you've heard it. It's called the Heidelberg Catechism, and the very first question of the, of the Heidelberg Catechism asked, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, and life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He is fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. And he also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven determining it. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. And that's kind of how I do it. And maybe that's something you need to memorize Because I belong to him and I'm part of his story, um, Christ makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready to step into that story and and to live it out on a day-to-day. You know, 100% God, 100% living with the wisdom, courage, and love and tenacity that his spirit gives. Okay, secondly, so that's the interesting kind of riff off of divine sovereignty in the passage. I want to briefly look at a second interesting thing, and that is the echo of Jonah that is found in our passage. To do that, I want you to go back to your childhood for a moment and remember, you remember the, you probably can't remember, but try to remember the very first time you carried, say, a gallon of water or a gallon of milk. When you did so, weren't you a little bit surprised? Like, wow, this is pretty heavy. (laughs) It is heavy. It doesn't look like it would be heavy, but it is. Now, have you ever been have you ever been sitting on a beach and you're looking out, watching the waves come in and you see in the distance the wave, it's way out there, but as it comes in, you just, you follow that singular wave all the way in until it crashes on the, on the coastline. Imagine how many gallons of water it's taking to lift that, that you know, lift it up from the, from the, uh, from the ocean's bottom and crash it onto the shore. It's just repeated again and again, day and night, relentlessly. What power? Like, what power? What, what power? I mean, the sea is full of power. 
And it's for that reason the Israelites were so afraid of it. Uh, They were terrified of the ocean. In the Hebrew mind, the ocean symbolized the dark powers of evil and chaos, the untamable fury that threatens to destroy all of goodness. Uh, When you get to the end of the Bible, you actually find a reference in the book of Revelation that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no, no ocean, no sea, which I don't think means that uh, all of um, the ocean will like, be evaporated or anything like that. But it's a picture. It's saying that the chaos will finally be, um, it will come to an end. Well, Paul was a man who was sort of captured by the power of the ocean. He was a really seasoned traveler. We know that Paul, for at least 11 times, traveled on the, the sea. And yet we also know that he was a person you'd never want to travel with. Why? Because he was shipwrecked on the sea, not once, not twice, but three times. Like, how, what are the odds of that? To be shipwrecked three times and to survive three shipwrecks. Elsewhere, in one of his letters, he says, I spent 24 hours, in, a night in the day, in the open sea. And it wasn't like he was floating around in an inflatable raft with canned food and a life preserver. No, I mean, if you're o- night and a day in the open sea, you're, you're, hol- you're holding on to like driftwood and floating debris. Isn't it interesting that, that Paul, um, he surely was a man who, who did not do this, did not say, well, God is with me, therefore everything is going to be smooth. I mean, God was with him, and God had written his story, but that did not mean that he would be going through sunny waters. I mean, you know, he'd be going through three shipwrecks and countless imprisonments and countless beatings. Well, there's one other big sea story that factors into the Bible, and it is, of course, the one we read a little bit from, or from Matthew referring to it. It's the, it's the story of Jonah, the book of Jonah, and if you're not familiar with it, Uh, Let me give it to you very briefly. Jonah was running away from God to avoid having to go and preach to the city of Nineveh, uh, to a group of people who were were not Jewish. And he was running away from God. He was in a boat, and God sent this great storm. And the sailors did what Paul's sailors did. The storm was so bad, they started throwing the, the cargo into the sea. Well, Jonah is asleep in the hold of the ship. And eventually the sailors wake him up and they realize the reason the storm has come upon us is Jonah. He's the one who did it. And so Jonah says, well, throw me into the sea and the storm will cease. And that is, of course, what ends up happening. They throw Jonah into the sea and it's entirely calm. And then later he is swallowed by a giant fish. I think there are two parallels going on here. I wonder... I wonder if Luke, if, he, if he's not making a subtle point here, that Paul is not like Jonah. He's not like Jonah. Like Jonah was running from God. Jonah didn't want to go to the imperial city of Nineveh to speak the good news of Jesus there. Paul, on the other hand, no, he is faithful, and he represents the church who throughout the book of Acts is faithful in her calling, a light of salvation in the darkness of the empire, and he wants to go to the city and to speak the good news. So there's, there's a parallel, there's a contrast between Paul and Jonah, but then there is a similarity between Jonah and Jesus. 
You know, when Jonah went overboard, everybody was saved. And then three days later, you remember in the story, it says he was resurrected out of the, the belly of a fish. He spit up onto the dry ground after three days. You know, that's not a story about Paul. That is a story about Jesus. And it's what Jesus mentioned when he spoke about the, the sign of Jonah. Um, you know, in the movie I mentioned earlier at the beginning of the sermon, The Perfect Storm, a spoiler alert, the, the rookie fisherman that's played by Mark Wahlberg um, goes overboard and just as, uh, just as the, he surfaces, he witnesses the uh, Andrea Gale sinking stern first into the Atlantic Ocean. And knowing that he has no chance of survival without a life jacket, he silently says his goodbyes to his loved ones. And he's rapidly you know, carried away in the swell. And he, he drowns. It's bleak. Everybody dies. When he is cast into the storm, um, they all die. But when Jesus said, when Jesus said, throw me into the heart of the storm, it was with Jonah on his mind that he would willingly offer himself to, to the storm, to the deepest agonies of the cross, the most hideous pain beyond words. And when he is thrown into the teeth of the storm, of course, everybody is saved. I'll just finish with this. Um, you know, for some people, this week was just like an ordinary week, just the ordinary grind of work and home and sleep and, you know, just bra braving the heat and all of that. For others, you know, it was a tough week. There was nights of tossing and turning and panic attacks and the looming sense that something terrible was around the corner. But whatever this week held for you, let me tell you, let me tell you this, the only storm that can truly destroy us is the storm of God's justice, God's ultimate judgment on sin and evil. And that storm, it's a storm that will never break upon you as a Christian. You know, that's the promise of the gospel. You know, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever should believe in him would not perish in the storm, but have eternal life. Like whatever this week held for you, um, it was a week that our Father in heaven was looking down on a world of people whom he loves in his Son, Jesus Christ. Me, you, all of us, all of us who believe. And you know, if you are new to Christianity or you never um, yet believed in Jesus, you know, what he calls you to do is to put your life in his hands and then to follow him in the waters of baptism um, and he promises from Isaiah 43, verse 2, that when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and the rivers will not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, and the flame will not burn you, because he um, has gone into the storm ahead of you. The empty tomb of Jesus is the full promise from God our Father that nothing can separate you from his love if you believe, no matter the day, no matter the storm. And that's what I invite uh, all of us to believe. Amen. Let's pray.